0: Jotham, the youngest son of Gideon. Jotham's name means integrity. Integrity speaks and says, if you have acted in good faith and in good conscience, then you have nothing to fear, and you will receive the blessing of the Lord. But if you have acted without integrity, the curse of God will be upon you, and judgment will come. And of course, the people of Shechem in choosing Abimelech to be their king had not acted in good faith and integrity. And so the curse of God came upon their heads and judgment came. Let me read the very end of chapter 9. Verse 55 of chapter 9. When the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, he was killed, everyone departed to his home. And thus God returned the evil of Abimelech Which he committed against his father in killing his seventy brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubal. So have your Bibles open and the sheet in front of you, and uh, we'll see what uh, we can make of this Bible passage. It is another dramatic episode in the history of the people of God. We're being accompanied by fireworks outside, which is not inappropriate, I think, to the passage. The story of Abimelech and the people of Shechem, who together conspired to make Abimelech king over Israel. I'm conscious that it is a long passage again that we have read, and that your mind may have drifted a little as we read it. Let me very quickly summarize the facts and uh, I do so with the first heading on the sheet, The Facts Concerning Abimelech and the People of Shechem. The story of Abimelech and the people of Shechem is really a footnote, albeit a very lengthy footnote, to the story of Gideon. Gideon was God's appointed judge over the people. And the rhythm of the book of Judges is something like this. The people of God sin. They turn away from God to follow after other gods. And in the period of the Judges, these other gods were the Baals and Baalbereth, And they come to an end of themselves. And the people turn once again to God. And God raises up a judge to rule them. And there is peace in the land. And so verse 28 of chapter 8, the first verse that Scott read, Midian, that is, who was oppressing the people of God before Gideon was raised up, Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest for 40 40 years in the days of Gideon. Verse 29, Jerubal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house, the writer of Judges Samuel keeps us on our toes, Jerubal is the same person as Gideon. So under Gideon, the people of God had peace. Gideon went and lived in his own house. He had 70 sons to his many wives. And one, verse 31, a significant detail, illegitimate son, Abimelech, born to his concubine who lived in the town of Shechem. And now what follows is a big footnote to the story of Gideon. Verse 32, Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, as soon as Gideon died. Verse 33, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal-bereth their God. They did not remember the Lord their God who delivered them from the hand of their enemies on every side and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubal that is Gideon in return for all the good that he had done for Israel and what follows in chapter 9 our passage tonight the story of Abimelech and the people of Shechem describes the sorry state of affairs in Israel over the next 3 years Just as a a footnote pause, it describes the sorry state of Israel not over the next three weeks or three months, but over three years. And often that is true in the history of the people of God. The, The down times are not short. This is relatively short, but they're not short. God needs his people to come to an end of themselves. Now, the writer of Judges, and we're still on the facts here, Samuel is the writer of Judges, describes what happened in three acts. It's like a three act uh, drama. Act 1 is chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Abimelech, who is the illegitimate son of Gideon, born to his concubine in Shechem, pulls off a military coup with the help of the people of Shechem. His tactics are clever, they are manipulative. They are ruthless and they are bloody as he sees his power. And the cost for him to seize power, the death of his seventy brothers, verse five is a shocking verse, as one by one he murders them, all except one Jotham, the youngest son of Gideon, more a boy than a man by age probably, who escapes. Verse 6, all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. That is Act 1, Abimelech, this ambitious, ruthless, and thoroughly bad man, becomes king over Israel. Act 2, verses 7 to 21, Jotham, the youngest son of Gideon, who had escaped and survived, exposes Abimelech and the people of Shechem, and pronounces a curse, God's judgment, on them. He does that by telling a strange little fable about trees in a forest, choosing which tree will be king. We'll come back to that later on. So that is Act 2. Act 1 is Abimelech being chosen to be king by the people of Shechem. Act 2 is Jotham, whose name means integrity pronouncing a curse in judgment on them. In Act 3, the final act in the drama, verses 22 to 57, describes in detail, it's a long chapter, we just read the end of it, the downfall of Abimelech and the people of Shechem as the curse, the judgment of God, falls on their heads. Verse 56, as we read, thus God returned the evil of Abimelech And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubal. So these are the facts of the story. It is a footnote to the story of Gideon. Act 1, Abimelech and the people of Shechem conspire together that he would become king. Act 2, Jotham, integrity, tells his fable. And pronounces a curse and judgment on them if they had not acted in integrity. In Act 3, the curse of God comes upon their heads and judgment falls. So these are the facts, Abimelech and the people of Shechem. The second heading you'll see on the sheet. What is all this about? Let me kind of cut to the chase. What's it all about? What's the application? What's the take home for us Tonight, And I think the application for us is, will we follow Jesus as our king? Now let me get us from the text here in Judges 9 to the question, will we follow Jesus as our king? Let me just show you why I think the passage is concerned with that. Notice uh, two things with me. First, where the text is leaning. And what I mean by that is that The text is leaning one way. And I think the text in Judges 9 is leaning not so much towards Abimelech, who he is, and the bad choices he made. The text leans us away from Abimelech to the people of Israel, the people of Shechem, and the choice they made. They are the ones that the spotlight is on, the choice of the people of God. So, for example, if you read with me, In the the, the central section, verses 7 to 21, verse 7, when it was told to Jotham that Abimelech had been made king, he went and stood on the top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, i.e. the people, listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, you who made the choice. He's addressing them, not Abimelech. In verse 16, perhaps the key verse in the whole chapter, now therefore, if you that is, you people acted in good faith and integrity when you made him king, then, verse 19, expect blessing, or if you did not act in good faith and integrity, expect curse and judgment. The spotlight is on the people and their choice. And, of course, the passage ends with the judgment on the people, not the judgment on Abimelech. So, that's the way the text leans. That's my first building block to get to the application. This passage is all about will we follow Jesus as our king? So we've established that it's about our response to uh, something. Now, how do we get to Jesus? That's always a a good question. Preachers always get to Jesus, but the Bible does get us there. Let me show you how. Why was the book of Judges written? Written by Samuel. When was the book of Judges written? The book of Judges was written a little bit further on in the history of the people of God when the people of God had to choose a king. It was written in the period of 1 and 2 Samuel when the people of God faced a choice. Will you make Saul your king or will you make David Your king? Will you make Saul, who is powerful and to all intents and purposes in worldly terms, the kind of guy you should follow to get you on? Or will you make weak, young David king, who is my anointed king? So if you were listening to a sermon on Judges in Samuel's day, Samuel would write Judges chapter 9, and the people of God, the application then, who will I follow as king? That's the application of Judges 9 to the people of God in Samuel's day. But we don't live in Samuel's day. We live further down the track in salvation history. And the choice we face in our day, because the Lord Jesus Has come, and this is what the book of Judges and this chapter in particular in the book of Judges is about for us. Will you follow Jesus as your king, or will you follow any number of other things as king, as rule of your life, as you make significant decisions? That is the fundamental choice we all face. Will we follow Jesus? As our king. That is the point of Judges chapter 9. Hope you see that. Hope you see that it's not just me jumping to Jesus. That's how the text of Old Testament narrative works. The spotlight in Judges 9 is not on Abimelech, it's on the people, their choice. In Samuel's day, the question was, Who will you choose, Saul or David? In our day, will you follow Jesus or not? Now, that is a fundamental question. That comes to us in a once-for-all way in our lives. Will you follow Jesus as your Savior and your Lord once and for all? That's the point, if you like, when we become Christians. But it's an equally important question in the Christian life. Remember, this is a question being asked of the people of God in Their walk with the Lord. Will you follow my king? Will you follow my anointed king? And the question then comes to us tonight if we are not Christians will you follow Jesus as king? Will you choose wisely for eternity? But the question is just, if not more relevant to us as Christians and to the church local churches, churches across countries, I guess? Will you follow Jesus as king? And very often these questions are asked at decision points on the road of life for us as individuals or decision points on the road for us as churches. Now, if that's what Judges 9 is about, I hope I've convinced you. Let's look in a little more detail at the text and draw out some specific applications. So, uh, I'm picking up the three points in the middle of the service sheet. uh, Act 1, verses 1 to 6, the appeal of a king like Abimelech. What was it about Abimelech that persuaded the leaders, the people of Shechem, to follow him? Well, there's a key phrase in the text it's at the beginning of verse 2 say this is abimelech in the ears of all the leaders of shechem here we go here's his election strategy which is better for you that's the heart of his appeal which is better for you what is in your best interests What gives you what you want? Or as one Bible commentator puts it, what gets you on in life? That is the appeal of Abimelech. It is classic election strategy. Vote for me and you will be better off. Leaders of Shechem, vote for me and you will have simple government. One ruler, me. Your town, people of Shechem, will be the center of Israel. The power base, priests of Shechem, I will make you archbishops. And don't for a moment think that that kind of appeal to the human heart is not astonishingly persuasive. It wins elections every time there is one. People of Shechem, leaders of Shechem, do what is best for you and become leaders of Israel. And he plays on family ties. He appeals to the fact that they have lived with injustice. He is the illegitimate son. They are tarnished with the same brush, for they live in the town. And now is their time to grasp power. Now is their hour to get ahead. It's a good campaign. It is well-funded, verse 4. They gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Bilbereth. Notice he doesn't care where the money comes from. 70 pieces of silver with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. Now, we need to be careful with parallels. Abimelech is the worst of the worst, and what he asks them to do is awful, but the worldly card he plays is timeless in its appeal. What is in your best interests? Now, think of it in relation to the fundamental decision of an individual as they look at their life ahead of them, What is in your best interest? What is it that you should follow to get you on, to give you what you want? Or think of it in your life as a Christian or in your life as a church. What is in your best interest? What is better for you? The appeal is strong. If it gives you what you want, even if it means some things you're not awfully proud of, some people perhaps discard it on the way, it is worth it. And very quickly, we forget because we get what we want and we justify it. Now, this is not a counter at all against strategic leadership, where sometimes tough decisions need to be taken. Sometimes I think that the church lacks the strategy of leadership, nor is it a quell to godly ambition. The Bible encourages that in lots of places. It is a warning, though, against self centered self interest, doing what is right for us, getting what we want. Now, this appeal to our hearts comes at us in lots of ways. Which is better for you? It's almost a strap line for a marketing campaign in a world that has rejected the rule of God. Think of it in that most fundamental sense. What is the devil's question? Eve, which is better for you? What is the world's marketing campaign, which is better for you? That is how you should make your choices, jobs, finances, priorities, relationships, church. Let me contrast Abimelech with the kind of King Jesus is. What is the appeal of a king like the Lord Jesus. Well, in this life, it will not look like it puts you on the winning side, sometimes but rarely. Following the Lord Jesus as king and serving him may well at times hinder you in getting on in life and may well do so more in the future. It may require you, almost certainly it will, to make decisions that are not in your self-interest but in the interests of others. Others doesn't simply mean those around you, but others, your children, the next generation, their children's children. Subsequent generations are always impacted by decisions in the present. What is the appeal of a king like the Lord Jesus? Often costly and you will bear the costs if his kingdom is to advance. Here's the difference. Following a king like the Lord Jesus has you bearing the costs such that his kingdom will advance rather than others bearing the costs such that your agenda will advance. It is a world in its head. That is the appeal of a king like the Lord Jesus. Who would follow him? It's not a great election manifesto. But when you get to know this king, you will find that he is astonishingly truthful and loving and good and kind. And the same king laid down his life for you that you might be forgiven and restored to God. That is the appeal of a king like the Lord Jesus. So will we follow Jesus as our king? Let me ask you that question in the once For all nature of that question. Will you follow Jesus as your king? Maybe you've been wrestling with that fundamental decision as life. Will you tonight make the decision to follow the Lord Jesus as your king? Or serve something or someone else? On which side of the line do we fall? Is the Lord Jesus on the throne in my life? Or or am I, I guess, is the opposite. And that's the fundamental once-for-all question. And in the Christian life, it is an ongoing decision, an ongoing question of allegiance, a decision about jobs or careers or relationships or money or church or my retirement. Some of you will be inevitably tonight at a point in your life that is a pivotal moment and you find yourself here and you're kind of not moving at all but you know that God is speaking right into your life at this juncture with the appeal of the Abimelech kind of stuff saying go that way because it's better for you or the appeal of the Lord Jesus say come this way because it is better for me, and my gospel, and my kingdom. Here's a way, uh, it's another way of, of looking at the, 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 the following after, the Bimelech's way. Here's a common thing that, that Christians do, or, or, or perhaps I've seen it happen when, when Christians come up to, to university. They say, okay, yes, Lord Jesus, I'm going to follow you, but I'm going to defer that decision to follow you for 10 years till we're down the track. And for the next 10 years, either consciously that decision comes or subconsciously, I'm going to do what's better for me. And I'm going to justify that so I get on and I get to a position so that when I decide to do what's better for you, I will have a lot of influence. That is a very, very perilous and dangerous strategy. Now, don't confuse that with that God may not put you in a position of significant influence, but you must do it on his terms, with a heart of integrity. What has struck me as I've studied this passage this week is that verses 1 to 6 make me nervous. They make me nervous because they make me realize that I'm not very good at choosing wisely, making the right choices. If we are honest, so very often we are sold on what is better what is easier for us. Now, let's move to Acts 2, verses 7 to 21, the truth about a king like Abimelech and our choices. In this central section, through Jotham, the truth is exposed, the truth about a king like Abimelech, and more importantly, the truth about our choices to follow him and the worldly pull, if you like, on a life. And it's searching stuff. It really is. The veneer is kind of stripped away. And the Lord doesn't just kind of punch little holes in the veneer. He just peels them off and strips. And, of course, God sees everything. He sees right into your soul tonight. He sees into my soul. He sees into the soul of his church. He sees it for what it is. Ultimately, of course, that is a good thing for a text of Scripture like this that asks the most searching of questions. If we are humble before its searching gaze, that search light leads us to humility before the Lord Jesus, and that is a wonderful thing. Now, some details. Jotham, the youngest son of Gideon, a boy rather than a man, is the one that God uses to expose the truth. His name, Jotham, means integrity, the voice of integrity exposes the lack of integrity. Verse 7, he stood on the top of Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim was to the east of Shechem. When the people of God had entered the promised land, they climbed up on a Mount Gerizim and pronounced blessings. God has no sentiment in his heart. Love, but no sentiment. He is not flexible when it comes to disobedience. He is inflexible. Because he is good and honorable. And so instead of blessings coming off Mount Gerizim, judgment and curse comes. And uh, you can uh, picture the scene, the coronation of Abimelech by the oak at the pillar of Shechem. And the voice of judgment comes from the mountain. Verses 8 to 15, we get a story or a fable about some trees. It's slightly strange to our ears perhaps, but the point is clear enough. The trees of the forest are looking for a king. From among their number, which tree should be king? First up comes the olive tree, verse 8. The trees went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, reign over us. As trees go, the olive tree has a good case to be king. After all, the olive tree provides the oil that you anoint kings with. So to the fig and the vine which follow. And yet all these noble trees of the forest reject the call to kingship. They have no desire for power. They want to go on being useful. In the end, the bramble is made the king of the trees. Brambles are no good for refuge. Brambles are great if you want to start a bushfire. That's what they're for. Now, the point of the fable is this, I think. Every one of the trees would have made a better king than the tree that they chose to be king And in the context of the events described, every single one of Gideon's son, including the little boy Jotham, would have made a better king than Abimelech. Abimelech, although they choose him, although they chose to follow him, is a bad king. And he is not the kind of king you want to rule over you. In the end, he will not provide refuge and protection. In fact, in the end, he will burn you up. And destroy you. At first sight, initially in your experience, following this kind of king might give you what you want, might give you what gets you on in life, might satisfy your desires. But in the end, it is a dangerous road that leads to destruction. That is the point of the story of the trees. And of course, it is true of the appeal of the world in our lives or worldly religion or worldly this, that, or the other, or a worldly view on relationships, the appeal of any one of these things, whether it's wealth or power or status or social acceptability or the passing pleasure of a wrong relationship or worldly religion, in the end it never, bar none, never satisfies in the end and leads so very often to heartache and despair and meaninglessness and a lack of fulfillment and even destruction. That is the warning. Now, as I've said a number of times, the spotlight in the text is on the leaders, the people of Shechem, verse 16. Therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubal, that is Gideon, and in his house, and have done to him as his deeds deserved, then, verse 19, you can rejoice. Or if not, then judgment will come in the end. What is very striking, I think, about verse 16. Verse 16 really is the key. If you've got a big highlighter, I was going to say highlight it, but don't do that in a church Bible. Highlight it on your touchscreen or in your own Bible. In fact, highlight it in a church Bible. Feel free. What's striking about verse 16? It's a, it's a very powerful application. Have you acted in good faith and integrity? Obviously, what we do is important. Our actions matter and have consequences. But Jothan gets to the heart of it. What is key? What is the heart of it? What is at the heart of our motivations? Have you acted? Have you acted? Christian, in good faith and integrity? At that decision point in your life, what a powerful indictment statement that is. What a powerful challenge this is. It has made me reflect, in all honesty, this week. Um, In relation to the circumstances we have gone through as a church, have we acted in good faith and with integrity? Have our motivations been godly? Have we gone about it with integrity? Of course, as Christians, we can pretend we have. It is astonishing how many times I hear the phrase and probably use it, God has called me, God has told me, God has not called me, God has not told me, thereby some great big overarching phrase to justify our actions. The Lord Jesus penetrates our souls, the souls of our churches, to the bottom of our feet, and he says, have you acted in good faith and integrity? I was thinking this week how thankful I am for a number of leaders and others in this church some of our elders who are absolutely scrupulous about acting in good faith and integrity. Heaven help us if we don't. Now in life too, jobs, finances, priorities, relationships, and the nitty-gritty, have we acted in good faith and integrity? What a tough test that is for the people of God. If we do, and uh, acting in good faith and integrity... At its root level is simply following Jesus as king once for all and all of life. If we have done that, then we can rejoice and uh, have the approval and blessing of God so for example, if we as a church have acted in good faith and integrity, and I want you to to, to think about that in all seriousness and sobriety and humility before God, if we have and we look to the future, which is chock-full, humanly speaking, of uncertainty, we have absolutely nothing to be fearful of. Nothing. But if we haven't, then what I think we could expect to happen is bit by bit, inch by inch, over three years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, things begin to unravel and unwind. And in the end of the day, the curse of God and judgment will come. God always deals with us as our actions merit. Now, Act 3, verses 22 to 57, the consequences of following a king like Abimelech. The rest of the chapter is about how God keeps his promise and the curse falls on their heads. It's very interesting. We didn't read it. Um, Time runs on with us. Um, If you read chapter um, Nine, it's extraordinarily convoluted and complex. It's about deals and intrigue and plots and machinations and going on behind this back and that back and over there, and nobody knows what is going on. And and, and history records the thing just disintegrating as you look back before our eyes. And that is what God does. Just unwinds stuff over periods of time. One of the striking first signs of God's judgment long before the fire of judgment consumes them is that they are given over to the world they have chosen. They become more and more tarnished. Verses 27 and 46 they flee to the house of their God, the Baals. They get caught up in the disorder of the world, the disordered world of compromise, intrigue, rivalry, and ambition. Did you act in good faith and integrity? Oh, but, but God has told me. God has called me. The Lord Jesus knows our hearts and he knows our souls. Now, that's true of the big issues in life. I've mentioned one or two of them tonight and they are going on in our country, but it's true of the nitty-gritty of our life just as well. Now, a Bible passage like this is meant to challenge us, and Judges does, for sure. It's meant to challenge us, if we are not Christians, to be Christians. That's the ratchet of the challenge of God. It's a very powerful challenge, but a wonderful invitation and appeal. I mean, who would you rather follow? A king like Abimelech? Now, it's very enticing, but actually when you see it in the cold light of day, or would you rather follow the Lord Jesus? Would you rather follow the kind of worldly king and worldliness that says, I'll give you what you want and then takes it away as soon as he can and gives it to somebody else? Or would you rather follow a king like the Lord Jesus who gives you his life? What would you do? Are you persuaded if you're not a Christian that every single person who is famous and wealthy says at the end of their life, bar very few, it is not worth it? It does not bring satisfaction and pleasure and happiness. That is the testimony of people as they come near to the end of their life. The marketing world says different things. Or will you follow the Lord Jesus, who is with you at the end of life, and takes you out of this life to eternal life with the one thing that really matters, faith in him for eternity? And if you're a Christian, many of us here tonight are. A passage like this is meant to challenge us. But always the intent of the Word of God is to bring us back to the Lord Jesus, who is truthful and loving and kind, that he laid down his life for you so that you might be forgiven, reconciled, restored into a relationship with. Now, there is a little bit of Christian jargon. You know that. But just think on it in your heart for a moment, faced with these decisions and pulls on life. Think of the Lord Jesus who died for you. It's not theology. It's not in a textbook. He died on a cross for you. And he says to you, at this juncture, will you follow me? Will you do what is right for me in my kingdom, for the church, for the blessing of others? Little wristbands that kids have, W W J D, what would Jesus do? Is it really much more complicated than that in the end? What would the Lord Jesus what will you do for your King? Will you do things for your King, the Lord Jesus? Or for yourself? In the end of the day, a passage like this, full of challenge and warnings suddenly evaporates before our eyes to be a passage that is warm and and generous and and inviting and and gracious and, and full of goodness and wisdom. Let's pray that we'll make wise choices. Loving Father, we want to humbly Respond to your word in prayer. Maybe things have been said that are exaggerations or applications that are personal and untrue. And ultimately, Lord, even if we look into the very depths of our hearts and minds, we do not always know, even that if we are acting in good faith and integrity, but you know. And you see the very depths of our souls. And Lord, the challenge of this passage is that we would make decisions that are in good faith and integrity for the glory and honor and reputation of the name of the Lord Jesus, for our King, the Lord Jesus, who is good and loving and kind and full of truth and worth, who does not ask us to bear cost to follow him in his kingdom before first laying down his life in that supreme sacrifice for us who does not put cost on others before he takes cost upon himself. And who is the king before whom every knee one day will bow and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Help us, Lord, to make good decisions, wise decisions, and to act in good faith and integrity. And help us, Lord, in the details of life to do the same. And Lord, tonight perhaps help someone here Or someone who studies Christianity explored in the coming days to make that once-for-all fundamental life decision to say, Jesus Christ, I want you to be the king, the rule, the Lord, the refuge, the protection for my life. And we pray that all in his precious name and for his sake. Amen.